Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. In this interview, we dive deeper into what kind of systems thinking is necessary to design investment products that really help farmers to transition towards regenerative agriculture. For instance, a loan where the interest payments are tied to measurable changes in soil health, and why farmers should be involved in every conversation and should be on the board of any food, agriculture, ag tech, but honestly, any company. Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food. This is a special dedicated series on transition finance. Why are we recording this series? Many farmers are ready to speed up their regenerative transition. They've looked for learning, done the courses, read the key books, hosted the gurus on their farms, explored farm-sized regenerative designs, and most importantly, started their pilots and feedback loops. This is where transition finance is key. A local bank loan often isn't feasible because of the short duration, lack of flexibility, and the farmer's lack of collateral. Furthermore, there's a limit of how much equity a farmer is able or willing to give away. That is why my co-host, aspiring to be regenerative farmer, Benedict Bösel, and I are embarking on a journey to find out what are the key principles of transition finance for regenerative farmers. We are interviewing leading practitioners in the regenerative agriculture and food finance space. They share their insights how they would finance the speed up of the regenerative transition on Benedict's 1,000 hectares, which is almost 2,500 acres, farm in Germany close to Berlin. This is an open process. We are sharing our lessons through the podcast episodes as we go along. We don't have the answers yet, just a lot of questions. So please share with us any examples of transition finance you've seen, other inspiration, people to interview, etc. Get in touch via the contact page on the website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. That is investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. Robin O'Brien is the co-founder of Replant Capital, a new financial services firm. Replant is creating financial products which addresses the most pressing issue of our time, climate change. Through a series of innovative captive funds focused on direct investments, Replant is partnering with farmers, ranchers, large food companies, and technical assistance providers to facilitate more resilient agriculture practices at scale. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to this podcast on transition finance. We, both of us, are very much looking forward to dive deeper into this topic. But first, a short intro. We never had you on the podcast. What brings you to food, ag, soil, and obviously replant capital? But let's stay. What brings you to food and ag? So my career has always been in the food industry. Um, I went to business school at Rice University. And when I graduated, I joined a team and we managed $20 billion in assets. I was the only female on the team. So the guys had me cover the food industry. So I learned the industry early on in my career in a very analytical way. It was just simply data, earnings, just the statistics. And then flash forward a few years, we had four children. And all of a sudden, I was looking at the food industry through the lens of a mother, as well as the lens that I had had prior of this financial analyst. And thankfully, uh, my mom is actually from New Zealand. And so I was born with this dual citizenship and this sort of dual lens on the world, one being seeing it through the ways that we do things as Americans, and then the other through my mother's eyes, which was as a New Zealander. And she was always saying, just because we do it one way here doesn't mean the rest of the world does it that way. 
And I grew up hearing that a lot over a lot of different things. And so when our children started to get sick, my first place was, okay, well, what can I be doing in food? And how can I be maybe better handling this as a mother when it comes to feeding the kids? On top of that, we were thrown into the challenge of food allergies and the food allergy world in the United States, it's massive. The universe has grown so fast and unfortunately it impacts so many families. And my big question was why? And so as I really started digging into food, you know, quickly kind of landed on this big question was, are we allergic to food or are we allergic to what's been done to it? And as I began to ask that question, there were certain agrochemical companies that were really upset that I was asking the question. There were other big CPG processed food companies that also were really upset that I was asking the question, but I couldn't not ask the question. And so as I began to dig deeper into that, I reached back out to my, you know, analysts that I had worked with at different companies like Goldman Sachs and Merrill and all these different analysts and relationships that I had there. I was also reaching out into the pediatric world because now as a mother of four, I had resources there and really trying to understand what we did not know about our food system and how it might be impacting the developing immune system of a child. I launched Allergy Kids Foundation. We built an advisory board of people from the food industry and, of course, a medical advisory board who could inform us around that. And as it continued to grow, it was really interesting. I mean, I had different opportunities. Random House published my book. The Unhealthy Truth. I was invited to give a TED Talk. That was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. But what was so interesting about that is that that talk was translated into dozens of languages. And so it really lands with where we are today in that this is really a global challenge. We have a global opportunity in front of all of us to take the food system that we've inherited and say, do we want to embrace this going forward? And what pieces are actually needed and required to build a food system that works for the 21st century? And it's not just for the 21st century consumer that now has diabetes or food allergies or autism, Alzheimer's or cancer or any of these conditions now hammering so many of us. But it's also how do you actually build a food system that works for the farmer? And where we landed with replant is the fact that, you know, in the United States, and it's not just in the United States, New Zealand has a similar problem farmers are now carrying massive, massive levels of debt. And when you are strapped into debt, you don't have the freedom or flexibility to even consider what might be possible. And so what we've seen is there was this amazing PR campaign, this amazing you know, financial campaign to really sell farmers in the United States on this operating system that is genetically engineered and chemically intensive. And it made a ton of sense for the chemical company, Monsanto, that was introducing it because all of a sudden they were introducing a whole bunch of new revenue lines. You know, instead of just selling their signature Roundup, they were selling Roundup Ready soybeans and Roundup Ready corn. And all of a sudden, you know, farmers were paying licensing fees and trait fees and royalty fees. So their business model just blew up with the introduction of genetically engineered crops because they could charge all of these different fees to the U.S. farmer. And as they did that, Farmers were taking out more and more debt, taking on more and more loans in order to finance this transition into this chemically intensive operating system. To the point now that U.S. farmers carry over $426 billion in debt. And the average median farm income now is you know, somewhere around negative 1500 bucks. And so as I was learning that data, I thought, what happens to a country that that doesn't have farmers. And as I spoke to farmers, they were saying, you know, my own kids don't want to step into this operating model. They don't want to step into the debt levels. They don't want to step into the chemical loads. They're not interested in being on the hook like this. And so the children of the farmers now in the United States, they've got, there's a real legacy issue on the farm. 
And that has really sort of awakened this crisis, even more so than the opioid epidemics we're seeing, more so than the suicide epidemics, more than the bankruptcies that we're seeing. I think the legacy issue is probably one of the strongest reasons we're starting to see real change in the U.S. and where the farmers come in and, it, you know, they can come into us at Replant. They're in conversations with companies like Anheuser-Busch and Bev. They're in conversations with companies like General Mills or Patagonia or Dr. Bronner's. The farmers are coming in and saying, I don't know how to transition. I don't know on the technical side. You know, all I've known is this chemically intensive operating system. I don't know how I'm going to finance this transition because if it takes three years to go from conventional agriculture to organic agriculture, what happens in that three-year period? And then I don't know who's going to be a guaranteed buyer as I come out the other end of that three-year period. So we sort of looked at the looked at the problem and realized there was an enormous opportunity to come in as a value-aligned, really well-educated capital partner and help the U.S. farmers finance this transition. So as we were having conversations with companies like General Mills and Nestle, you know, they were saying, like, we're bottlenecked. We know that the consumer in the United States wants more regenerative organic food. And 80% of consumers now in the U.S. are purchasing something organic. 75% of all of our grocery store categories now carry something organic. But only 1% of farmland in the United States is organic. And a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of that, even a tiny slice of that, is even regenerative. So we saw that as an enormous opportunity to really help fund and close that gap. And the challenge is that a lot of these publicly traded companies, you know, their shareholders, their capital is coming from the publicly traded markets. And so on that quarterly earnings model, the demands are so extreme and so intense and so high. And I say that from an all-knowing perspective because we did that as a team. We demanded so much from these publicly traded companies that the, the they couldn't even consider beyond the next quarter. They couldn't consider a three-year transition period to organic. So we stepped back and thought, how do we create a capital source that can help come in beside these large CPG companies, work with the farmers, provide the technical expertise that is required by the farmers to, to then begin the transition process. And then you, by having the relationships with these large companies like Danone or Anheuser-Busch and Bev or Driscoll, some of these big companies, you're bringing in a guaranteed buyer. And so it's mitigating the risk for the farmer. And so for us, you know, that was really, as we started to really land on that as a solution, um, we realized that, it was an incredible opportunity, not just for, for us here in the United States, but really um, farmers around the world. So our attitude was clearly, you know, this is critically important. And how can we open source what we're doing so that more people have access to it? So I'm really excited to be on this with you guys today. Wow, Robin, I, I got to give it to you. I am always fascinated by these kind of people who are able to explain the most complex situations and concepts in so nice and easy and fluid words. If I would want to say the same smart things that you just said, I would probably need 55 minutes and no one would listen <laughs> to me. So thank you so much for that. that. That's really something to aim for. But um, I mean, you covered just basically the whole idea and background of, of the podcast, right? I mean, there's pretty much anything you said is, is really why we, we are, we're speaking right now. And I think for me, one of the most interesting parts, I guess, is that the, the question of the depthness or being in depth and, and the dependency of farmers. I think this is such a crucial point because it has to do with rural development in such a strong way, right? I mean, we have to empower farmers. Farmers are the ones and the only ones in that regard who can do all those kind of things that we all want. 
biodiversity, climate mitigation, healthy food, and I mean food as as, as medicine, basically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, providing in, in the rural area. I mean, this is what farmers basically do and we need to help them. We have to be able to give them the tools and, and the services that they need in order to do what we all want, right? And as of today, I think it's more a, a, a situation where everyone has a good advice and everyone has an opinion and everyone has a good product that someone can buy, but really helping in the end of the day, that that's very few, right? And, you know, coming to regenerative agriculture, I mean, when you talk about it and we, we, we look at the visionaries all over the world, everyone is like, oh my God, that's that's great. Like, why don't we all do it? Why, why don't everyone change, right? And from like the situation in Germany, what I see, and obviously that's very limited, but that's still something that is, that is really in this, in this, uh, in, in our area is there's certain situations, um, that different farms are in. First thing is in our area where we have very sandy soil and low precipitation, farmers are fighting for their lives, fighting for the farms each and every day they don't have the emotional freedom to think beyond what they're already doing to keep it alive, right? So we cannot ask them to do any changes. Um, and Volker Engelsmann from, from Eosta always says, how can I think green if my figures are red, right? I mean, that, that puts it beautifully. So that's one part. The other one is they have invested into, let's say, a big stall. They've invested into some sort of model of, of how they do their, their farm business. And the bank wants to have you know the annuity payments they don't care what you think would be good for animal health or, or whatever they will ask for the money and you have to you're stuck in that system of paying back basically the debt obligation that you have so they can't change either even if they want want to or they have really good soil really good water um, and they're earning a lot they even get government subsidies on it so why would they change the system right so there's like these different kind of situations that farmers are in um, depending on let's say the, the the environment they're also faced in where uh, it, it is really a matter of, of can you get out of it and if so how and that brings in that whole aspect of we need a financial product that guides them and that helps them that is a partner in that process That is basically, uh, Kuni always say, they sit on the same side of the table, right? And I think that's really the core of, of you know, this series on uh, an alternative way of, let's say, financing um, farmers that are in transition. I agree completely. And it's been really interesting. I mean, I think your point, how can we think green when our fingers are red? Um, we see that here, too, where we sit down with farmers across the United States and You know, just as across Europe, you'd have different soil types and climates and water issues, depending on the country that you're in. Here in the U.S., the states are very much like that. So if we're talking to farmers in Texas or California or Minnesota or Nebraska, you know, there can be different sets of issues. And as we initially were in those conversations to come in and and support and and try to work with them on these solutions that they needed, it was really interesting. It was exactly your point. It was I don't, I can't think green. I don't even have the time, the space, the bandwidth, the capacity. I, I am literally trying to get through this day to day to day, especially as you throw in all of these different issues like droughts and floods and the issues that are tied to climate and weather, you know, that farmers are now being impacted by. They're really just trying to solve for that day to day. And where we landed as a team was how do we offer, how do we offer sort of a menu of solutions that is very well informed by our technical assistance partners, by farmers that we have worked with and by the food companies? How can we actually provide that list 
of different opportunities um, for farmers to partner with us so that they have the capital that they need to deploy, whatever their unique situation might be. And I think, you know, as you speak to farmers and these big food companies that are in the conversation of how do we convert from conventional chemically intensive agriculture to regenerative agriculture to build soil health, simple things, you know, it's, it's things like cover crop seeds that need to be purchased and maybe there's different equipment needs that need to be financed. Um, you know, depending on the crop, you know, when we talk to Driscoll's, the farm worker issue there is so critical, you know, it is, it's absolutely critical. And some of the issues they're seeing on their farms revolve around things like childcare. So again, it's really this, this very holistic systems thinking that's required. And unfortunately, I, I don't know, I can't speak to Italy or Germany, but here in the U.S., we lost sight of that a long time ago. Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com course or in the show notes description below. Can you walk us through an example, uh, like um, a farm, and try to describe it as visually, obviously, as we're in a podcast, as possible, like one of the farms and farmers you've worked with, and what were the items on the menu you uh, shared, and what was were the item or items that ended up working for that farmer? Because I think the holistic view, obviously, is absolutely critical. And then at the same time, I hear the investor voice in my the back of my mind saying, yeah, but it needs to be standardized, otherwise we cannot scale, and we cannot replicate it. So there's a constant tension between flexibility and a lot of different options and running out of time we need to probably transition i don't know how many millions of farmers so how do we do that so can you walk us through one example or two examples that that really give a great way of seeing basically the toolbox you have the menu you've been working with so i think probably the first thing that comes to mind is the technical expertise and the technical assistance that is required on the farm which is a farmer to farmer thing. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to hear from some finance group in Oakland or or Boulder. They want to hear from those people on the ground who can actually assist them in that technical transition and in the know-how. And so for us, it's so critically important that we bring on these technical assistance partners. And, you know, one of them, Eco Practices, they're extraordinary. They are definitely our, our knowledge base on so much of this. Um, when we have a question around farmer needs, we go to them. They're Kansas and Missouri based, and they're able to inform us on what they're seeing directly on the ground in their communities. Again, you know, it's a localized solution. And so if we're working with farmers in Ohio, that technical assistance partner is going to look very different because a lot of the farmers in Ohio are Amish and therefore they're not using technology. So how do you actually work to create some of these solutions that normally involve technological platforms or at the very least cell phones and how can you uh, work with the Amish farmers, you know, in this transition process. What's been really interesting there is just in the last couple of years, the farmers have embraced um, using cell phone technology on farm during daylight hours to better inform them around soil health and around the practices and the better practices, especially in transition. Um, But I think, you know, the biggest needs that we're hearing are cover crop, you know, it's around cover cropping. I think that when a farmer has been growing conventionally using, you know, the agrochemical suite of portfolio um, for the last 20 years, you know, to really kind of start with something as simple as cover crops, um, it does not feel intimidating. It feels accessible. 
um, event quickly step into the needs that would be required for equipment. Um, Another area that we're focusing on is water conservation, water metrics. Um, And so, you know, different farmers, especially when we're talking to dairy farmers, they're really interested in how they can be smarter about water conservation on their farm. So again, you know, we sort of, for the last 20 years under Monsanto and companies like that, we've lived under this model of one size fits all. And that's what actually broke agriculture. What we're stepping back from is sort of saying, let's actually decentralize this and let's honor the fact that we localize these solutions. It's not one size fits all. You lean into the expertise of a given region or area or collection of farmers and you work specifically with them. So again, for us, it's we're not here to dictate what that is. We're here to sit down at the table and figure out how to finance it. And you would end up financing the cover crops for this farmer or you would end up financing the water sensors, et cetera, to the moisture sensors to help save water. That would be the part Replant does or how would that work? That's part of what we do. You know, we think of it as a pie chart. So it's like, you know, definitely that's a piece of the pie. Those are pieces of the pie. You know, we're also hearing from farmers who, as they began their transition to organic agriculture, you know, they were they were very much conventional using a bunch of chemical inputs. As they shifted to regenerative, they felt that was probably the most reachable. And so as they shifted from conventional to regenerative, what they saw was, you know, an Im- improvement in soil health. They were able to save half a million bucks a year on chemical inputs. And then all of a sudden, once they're in that regenerative space, the few steps out to organic don't feel as far away. And they can see that if they were to go all the way to organic, there's a premium there for those crops. So where regenerative has enabled enormous cost savings, organic then enables that premium on the upside, you know, in terms of when they're selling their crops into the market. And so... We have heard from farmers who, once they're in motion like that, they're like, look, I have 7,000 acres under management that are organic. I want to acquire 2,000 more. So it's, again, helping that farmer finance that acquisition and that expansion to more organic acreage. It's really important distinction because we are starting with the soil fund and it is a loan fund. And it's really kind of getting at these debt levels and really helping to tackle it and really helping to bring it down so that the farmer has more flexibility and more autonomy in his decision making. Because we, you know, we see that that's part of the problem. I mean, you can't with so much debt and so much that's required under that debt, there hasn't been a whole lot of breathing room for the farmer. So by coming in really as a loan fund, that's our focus. A lot of people have said, well, would you want to buy the, you know, do you want to buy the land? We don't want to be landlords. That's not the business model that we're creating. It's really the soil funds are loan funds that are really helping figure out how we can help farmers transition their crops to regenerative organic agriculture. What I always think in this regard, and and you mentioned it, or you, you, you touched upon this uh, quite nicely just now, um, like we always, when we think agriculture, when we talk agriculture, what we all think of all the time is primary production of food. And obviously that's what we're doing. But, and then this starts at basically two roots of, of thinking about this. On one side, this goes back to the whole idea of true cost accounting or true cost of food. We, we, we think about the negative externalities of our production model and we try to basically monitor, like monitor them and monetize them and say, okay, Basically, we have to reduce those negative consequences of the production models, right? And then you can split that up between conventional, organic, regenerative, whatever it is. That's coming from basically the more more negative side. But I kind of prefer to look at it the other way around. 
and think about what kind of values do we actually create by doing what we're doing, right? So obviously we're producing food, but we're also taking care of the land. Mm -hmm. We're also taking care of the animals. We also take care of basically the, the aesthetics of it. We also take care of the environment in some way. And that has, that has value to it. It has value that you can basically monitor, you can monetize it. So when we talk about, you know, climate change, when we talk about the kind of problems that we face as a society on a worldwide level, don't we have to completely change the talk and the topic and the view, how we see basically agriculturalists, but also people who are in, in the forestry who actually do take care of the land. They're, they're basically yeah, caretakers of the land and they produce food, but they have so many other mm -hmm. uh, tasks that they fulfill. And don't we have to think in a whole new way of, of basically paying for those kind of, Uh, services that they basically do for the all for all of us, right? Well, I think you know you're starting to see that with the emergence of this B Corp certification. And Jay Cohen Gilbert is a friend of our teams and one of my co-founders, Don Schaefer. He was on the founding board of of B Corp and B Lab. You know, and I think again, it's a much more encompassing value system in terms of those models. And I agree completely. You know, the farmer, unfortunately, the language around farming in the United States, and it sounds like around the world, was focused on yield. And that that was the only value that a farmer was was producing was yield. And when we sit down with farmers here in the United States now, they're like, that was so misguided to only focus on yield because soil health has been destroyed in some cases. Profitability has been destroyed. You know, there's bankruptcy, there's mental health crisis that's happening on the farm. By only focusing on yield, we ignored so much. And if you can step back and say, okay, let's think about it. What if we were to focus on profitability for the farmer? What would that actually look like? That includes exactly what you're saying, which is building soil health. So as a financial services firm that's in this space, our loans are tied to soil health. And no one's ever done that before. But it's why we have these third-party partners, because they offer metrics for us that help inform us on the terms of our loan. And so... A farmer, if he is demonstrating improved soil health, higher organic nutrient density in the soil health, water conservation, water infiltration, carbon sequestration, those are all things that you can measure when it comes to soil health. The stronger those metrics are, the lower his cost of capital. And to really think about aligning the incentives because he's already doing the work or she's already doing that work, but she's never been compensated for it directly. And so By tying the cost of capital to the health of the soil, you're actually being compensated directly for those better practices. So instead of the focus only being on yield, all of a sudden we've said, hey, you know what? Our focus is on soil health, and these are the metrics, and these are the way that we're capturing it. And, and just to give an understanding, what is the, because this is revolutionary, as you said, I, didn't, I ever haven't heard anybody connecting soil health specifically to the cost of capital what is the range that it fluctuates as an example if you have an example like is it is it a significant difference if i as a farmer work really really hard to improve my soil health do i see that and like significantly back in in a lower cost of capital i think you know for us we're I, i wish i had more data to give you as it relates to that but we're right out of the gate so i don't unfortunately right now but what i will say is that by having partners like danone that are B Corp certified and thinking much more in terms of stakeholders, not just shareholders, it enables us to deliver those returns 
at the farm level in a way that that hasn't happened before. And so, for example, with Danone, you know, if there's a third party technical assistance partner, in some cases, they say, you know, we're going to step in and we're actually going to cover the cost of that because we understand the value that it's bringing to our supply chain. So, again, you know, it's recognizing that the most critical piece in the food system is actually happening at the soil level, which the farmer is the steward of. And so to really bring that into the conversation, what has been absolutely shocking is how few of these large global food companies actually have those direct relationships with their growers and with their farmers. Danone is extraordinary because they know their 700 plus dairy farmers. Anheuser-Busch and Bev is the same way. They've got over 700 barley growers. They have direct relationships with them. Driscoll's is another one. They have over 700 family farmers. They've got absolutely direct relationships with them. And I think, again, you know, we step out of the 20th century into the 21st century, and that transparency is required for a successful food system. So the companies that don't have that direct relationship with their farmers and with their growers and that really are kind of blind to the procurement side of things, they're quickly trying to get to know them, which is great. Um, but I think, you know, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, so it's going to depend brand to brand um, and really kind of the types of fields that the farmers are managing, what, how that equation is actually going to play out. And would you be able to share, I mean, not now probably, but you mentioned open source, your process obviously before, like how do you connect alone products to the soil health like what which obviously is going to be different in different parts but I'm, I'm imagining like in a few months or maybe in a year when this is is going how do you actually do that because i think a lot of people would say wow sounds amazing but sounds also very complicated i mean i think it would be if you didn't have partners like we have with eco practices so that team is a bunch of agronomists with a bunch of just absolute data jockeys. So they're able to capture this information as it relates to soil health, everything we're talking about, carbon, nutrient density, organic matter, water conservation, they can capture those metrics. And again, that's been the focus of their business model is eco practices, capturing the metrics of soil health. So by bringing them in as a third party partner, not as something that's part of replant, but as something that is independent of us, they're actually reporting on that data and those metrics. And that can inform us as we sit down, you know, to structure the loans with the farmers. The, the experience that we are tapping into, my two co-founders, Dave Haynes and Don Schaefer, Don was CEO of RSF Social Finance. So he has spent a decade there as CEO doing exactly this, integrated capital, creating these these innovative loan terms. Um, so that's his background. Dave Haynes was private equity. He's been in the food space the same as I have for his entire career. And he has also brought incredible expertise on in terms of what it looks like to actually structure these financial packages for these different farmers and these different companies. So for us, it's sort of taking that collective expertise of an eco practices with RSF social finance and bringing it together and saying, we gotta, we've actually got to think about the way we finance farmers in a different, new, and more innovative way. Yeah, I thought um, also something you mentioned, um, it's, it's quite uh, interesting because I think what we need in, in that whole discussion and, and I think uh, the, the, the crisis that we're all currently facing through, through Corona um, is, is something that might add some, some new potential to it. But we, we, we totally have to change the narrative, right? Um, we are so caught up in f emotional fights about who is right and who is wrong. And, and with that comes so much 
um, yeah, I guess pain and, and, and lost energy because we're all just putting all the energy in the discussion and not really thinking about solutions. But the thing is that we're fighting around the topic if, you know, convention is the right way or ecological is the right way or this or that or whatever. And there is not one, you know, one testable or one provable claim, so to say. Everyone has his own thoughts or her own thoughts, and that's okay. But what I think many of us, if not all of us, can agree on, that farmers are left out of the conversations or put it differently, farmers are at the moment just not earning the incomes. Farmers are in the situation where they cannot be in. They're dependent. They have debt. They are in bad situations pretty much all over the world. We can more or less all agree on that. So that alone is a reason to say, hey, everyone who is involved from you know, the farmer, him or herself, throughout the whole value chain up to the politicians, we have to change the system. And now the solution or now the, the discussion should not be, is this the right way or that the right way? Because that doesn't help. And there's many thousands of right ways, always depending on you know, your, your thoughts, your ethics, your machinery, your market entry, whatever. But what we all agree, of, uh, all agree to is we need to find a new way. And what's that new way going to look like? And what does that incorporate? I think that, that whole idea of actually finding a new narrative which is not emotionally so already fed up with, I guess, is really something that we can all, yeah, maybe draw more focus on. And then from that start to actually, you know, start talking about solutions. Again, and I think it's a hundred percent. And in the conversations we've been having over the last several weeks, as this coronavirus hits the globe is, you know, here in the United States, it's exposed incredible vulnerabilities in the food system. And one of the first being that most of our farm workers unfortunately, have not been granted legal status. So here they are providing one of the most fundamental, fundamental critical services to our country, and yet we haven't even granted them legal status. And some might come back and say, oh, well, those are jobs that could be reserved for Americans. But, you know, study after study shows that when those jobs are posted, Americans aren't. They're not signing up to, to bend over backwards in the fields, you know, picking strawberries all day long. So, again, it's really, it's really saying, how do we actually how do we actually build a sustainable food system? And that, that is from the farm level, farm worker level, all the way through the truckers to the cashiers, to the grocery store clerks, to the companies and the, and the industries that are, that are helping, you know, feed the world. And so uh, again, it's, I think we sort of, we built out this system without, without thinking through the long-term consequences. And now even in the short-term consequences, the impact and the externalized costs and, you know, again, there were brilliant marketing models put forward and brilliant PR campaigns put forward about how this agrochemical operating system was going to feed the world. According to the United Nations and according to the USDA, 40% of the food that we produce is wasted and thrown away. So again, you know, is it a production problem or is it actually a distribution problem? And how do we actually solve for this? And most importantly, how do we do it in a transparent way? So how do we bring transparency to the absolute financial and economic devastation that our farmers are seeing so that people are aware of that? And that's been a focus of mine for a really good part of my career. I'm actually named after a farmer in New Zealand. And so it's, it's very personal. Um, so how do we bring how do we bring a real awareness to the fact that we've created a situation for farming in the United States and around the world that's made it so that the next generation does not want to step into that as a career? And that puts so much at risk. So how do we actually 
rethink the economic and financial situations of farming in America, farming in Germany, farming in Europe, you know, wherever it might be, farming in New Zealand, so that younger generations are looking at that as viable, lucrative careers that they actually want to step into because that doesn't exist right now. And it's, that's the food crisis that's a couple of years out. And do you see like a growing interest? Because we see the same here in, in Europe. Suddenly people are exposed to empty shelves in the supermarket and they never had to think about that. And suddenly people are, I just heard from a, a local food company in, in the Netherlands that basically overnight doubled their amount of customers in a week, sorry, not overnight, doubled their amount of customers. And every one of those customers ordered 30% more than they usually did, meaning that they even grew more in a week. Mm-hmm. And I hear that from many different places, like the local food scene, unless you are very exposed to restaurants, obviously, um, is booming. Do you see that on the farmer side of things as well? Is there, or are we too early in that crisis to to see a certain uh, awakening moment? Like I cannot be just a monoculture selling to one customer or one client or one um, wholesaler and, and that's it. I'm very fragile in that system. Or is it, are we too early to see that? And are we just maybe, I wouldn't say hoping, but looking for these little lights in, in a very dark period, obviously. I think, you know, the invitation is going to be to creatively disrupt this current model. And, you know, one of the conversations we had yesterday was with the president of Driscoll's and he was talking about how. For anybody that doesn't know Driscoll's, what what does Driscoll's do? Driscoll's is raspberries, strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, um, heavily based in, in California, but also globally, China, around the world. Um, And what I love about him is he is from Denmark and he is a systems thinker. And so he, again, will go high level and kind of um, observe best practices that are happening around the world. And um, one of the points he made on our call yesterday was that tomato growers in Florida are being absolutely hammered by this disruption with this virus right now because predominantly they sell into food services, whereas Driscoll's, the berry grower, only has not only, but 8% of their business is going into food service. So all of a sudden you've got tomato growers where the majority of their business was going into food service, so cafeterias, school cafeterias, business cafeterias, and it is shut down, you know, and you can't suddenly like repopulate those fields quickly. You know, that that tomato stuff is being donated to food banks, donated to shelters, and it's out. You know, so his point was, you know, you better anticipate the cost of things like spaghetti sauce to start going through the roof because that that was the tomato supply that just basically had to be donated because that market that they had always sold into and really relied on as a primary source of their revenue went away. So again, that one size fits all proved really detrimental. So again, how do we diversify? How do we bring transparency to this? What's interesting is that the food service companies themselves with the shutdown that's happening of these you know, massive cafeterias that they've been putting product into for decades they realized that they could start to sell stuff individually. So, you know, they're doing food drops, you know, residential food drops. I mean, it's fascinating kind of what this crisis is creating in terms of opportunities and innovations and new models going forward. I think probably the worst decision that could have possibly been made was that any of these companies existed without farmers on their board. So when we talk to any of these startups or any of the companies that come to us and, you know, are interested in what we're doing or interested in trying to secure capital, whether we're referring them to partners, you know, my, my first question is always, do you have a farmer on your board? 
And, and unfortunately, most of them don't. They don't think that way. And so you've got these brilliant minds coming out of the tech world, coming out of Silicon Valley. And, you know, again, they truly, truly are sincerely trying to help. They're trying to create solutions that are really tackling some of these systemic issues in the food system, whether it's water, soil health, you know, different ways that they can leverage ag technology on the farm. But unless there's a farmer who is core on that team, you could be creating something that's never going to be used or adopted on the farm. And then that's hundreds of millions of dollars that's been wasted that really we can't afford to waste at this time. So like you're saying, you know, again, it's we've sort of treated the farmer as this sort of servant slave labor, this this lower part of society simply focusing on yields when really the value they're providing is so much greater. And I think, you know, we're starting to understand globally the power that soil has as a carbon sink and that soil's fundamental job before growing food for any of us, before anything else, soil's job is to capture carbon and store it. And when we've destroyed soil the way we have through these agrochemical systems, it's unable to do the job it actually was designed to do. So with farmers, what you're seeing is, you know, their yields are declining because they've been pouring these chemicals and treating their crops for the last 20 or 30 years. So as they begin to focus on soil health, what they're finding is that yields begin to improve because, you know, again, there's water conservation, there's soil organic matter. So to recognize that the farmers play this role so far beyond yields and so far beyond these these ingredient inputs that they're, that they're feeding into, into the food companies. And, you know, one of the things I wish that we could do, which, you know, B Corp and B Lab, they're sort of, they're sort of moving this way and people are beginning to think this way, but, you know, soil needs to be on the balance sheet of every company. Water needs to be on the balance sheet of every company. Clean air needs to be on the balance sheet of every company because those companies can't run. They don't exist without those those three assets. And unfortunately, we haven't included those in these models for these companies, whether it's in the food industry or others. So there's enormous opportunity, I think, for people to engage. I heard from somebody at Richard Branson's office, and they were interested in the food space. Um, the, the, there wasn't a ton of interest there. And I said, you know, talk to me a little bit about the model. And he, he launched into this conversation about travel and transport and leisure, and that's their focus. And that's why they're not focusing on food. And I sort of stopped him and I said, listen, Joe, you know, what if, what if Richard Branson was to launch Virgin Farms? And what if Virgin Farms were solar and wind powered? So you have, you know, renewable energy as part of that definition of regenerative, which is how we see it at Replant is that if you're going to have regenerative agriculture, it includes renewable energy. So let's say Virgin Farms has solar and wind on those farms. And then it's also growing regenerative organic crops that are part of its system, you know, that are feeding into all of the transport, travel, and leisure programs that they've got in place. Imagine the power that Virgin would have with those farms capturing carbon, providing all of this renewable energy. And again, it's how do we think about any of these systems, any of these industries and any of these corporations, how do we think about it more as a closed loop so that these costs are not being externalized? And in order to close that loop, you've got to have farmers at the table. I totally agree. I mean, in so many ways, um, you know, we, we all have an opinion and wishes and hopes and, and, and good ideas and whatnot about the way we should do farming and, and, and what we all want from farming. But the, the farmers are most of the time left out of the conversation. But I mean, 
the thing is, I mean, there's, I, I spoke to this amazing guy, Christian Hiss. Um, he founded the, the Regionalwert AG uh, in, in Freiburg, which is basically a new way of getting, um, basically getting a public group of yeah, interested, uh, uh, like let's say private people to invest into basically a structure that then enables farmers to do certain ecological farming, basically. Um, a model that, that that all of you are probably aware of. And he basically also started that whole idea of basically the value of farming and, and putting that into a, a much broader perspective. And he, he, he came from exactly how you basically pointed it out from the sort of the financial side of it. Like let's, let's put those kind of numbers into the balance sheet. You know, that's, that's real accounting. This is the sort of the, the accounting approach that we need. And, Pretty much, I would say anyone involved in this and all the farmers, they are obviously all completely agree with it. They're like, okay, this is the way we should do it. And it makes just so much sense. But the problem is, and this is basically my question for you, Robin, is like we need politics and politicians to work with that, to be open to those new concepts, to say, okay, let's take this work upon us. Let's try to incorporate it into our policy approaches. Let's, let's actually take this as a starting point and be this basically the new standard of doing things. And if they don't do it, we will never get that reach. We will never take those kind of development steps that we need in order to scale it or to bring it into a larger group. Right? So politics plays such a huge, immense role. So, What's your experience? What's your thought on that? How can we basically lighten up their spirits and their motivation to, you know, it's work. It's it's a new approach. You know, you you got to do things. You got to think differently. And how can we facilitate it? How can we help? You know, bringing people, or especially politicians, to to be open to that and to be willing to change. What are your experience? What are your thoughts? That's a great question, and I for better or worse, do have a fair amount of policy experience. Um, it first started around legislation for food allergies, just labeling. You know, it was really, that was 15 years ago, born out of a desire to protect a child I had with food allergies. And I'm grateful for it because at the time, I just went to my local congressman and said, look, here's the data. This is the statistic. This is how many children have food allergies. This is how it's impacting society. And it was just data. I was incredibly intimidated. I had this vision of some politician behind this giant mahogany desk and that it was going to be really intimidating and I was going to feel really stupid and not able to, to do what I was hoping I would be able to do because I, was, I, had, I had no idea what the process was like, but I knew I had to start. And what was fascinating is that the first levels in when you're working with any kind of policy change or policymaker is really a bunch of, of 20-something, early 30-something-year-olds who are super passionate about these issues. So whatever your perception might be for the, the person behind the desk who may have been in Congress or in government for 30 years, that front line is a bunch of really energetic young people. And that was probably the first thing I learned was the, the, these are the first hands that these issues get into. And this issue, this particular issue is so relevant to them. So, you know, to not be intimidated by beginning the process, because that guy behind the mahogany desk, you may or may not ever see. 
you know, the most interaction you're going to be having is with a lot of the staff, which is, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and really dialed into a lot of these issues in the 21st century. And, and then beyond that food allergy legislation, I then did a lot of work over a lot of years around labeling genetically engineered ingredients in the United States. I was a founding board member of Just Label It, which was an organization that Gary Hirschberg of Stonyfield started um, to, to really bring labeling to genetically engineered foods. And what was fascinating is while we were trying to accomplish that at the national level, the states began to really push for that labeling at the state level. And that was the most important lesson that I learned on policy is you have got to start local. When you start local, people are empowered to participate. And what we're asking for is participation, because there is no progress without participation. So by working with your local legislators first, you actually can get somewhere pretty quickly and pretty fast. Our local congressman is now the governor of Colorado. When we first sat down together, he told me, he said, you know, I know when somebody has sent a letter or sent an email that there are dozens of other constituents who feel the same way, who just haven't taken the time to actually sit down and send that email or send that letter. And so, you know, again, like you really have got to focus on progress, not perfection. We have inherited a food system that has been broken for at least 50 years. We're not going to fix that overnight. But as we begin to work with our local legislators, you know, our state level legislators, we can really begin to create change. So what was fascinating was at the national level, we were advocating for the labeling of genetically engineered foods. The state initiatives began to take off. The funding that we were up against was enormous. So, for example, in the state of Colorado, you know, the, the industry, the food industry, the agrochemical groups, they put in something like $20 million. I don't think the state of Colorado that was pro-labeling that side raised even a million. So we were completely outspent. But what it created was an education campaign. And all of a sudden, the consumers that had no idea how food was grown or that this process had even been implemented and was executed on farm, all of a sudden, consumers were learning about genetically engineered crops, the portfolio of chemicals required to grow them, and they began to opt out. And so the market changed. So my answer is, policy follows the money. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. So on the one hand, yes, you know, for those people that get really excited and really want to get involved and active on the policy side of things, we really, really need you. I'm, that was not me. I had to really learn how to do that. And I really had to lean into it. And it's, it's incredibly inspiring work. And it also, you do, it feels very much like you're really at the heart of um, the fabric of kind of the constitution or whatever the regulations are that, that, that your country was built on. So it's an incredibly inspiring work, but it's a long game and it's not going to change overnight. What you can change is the consumer patterns and the consumer buying behavior. And so one of the things that we heard um, under the Obama administration when we were working on GMO labeling was basically you have to give me political cover. So has the movement grown enough to create the political cover that the politicians need. So again, it's not either or, but it's both and. And again, I think where we are now is 80% of consumers are buying something organic and 75% of grocery store categories are now carrying something organic. Um, so clearly, you know, there's an awareness, the education has worked, people are shifting into free from food purchases. Um, and as that happens, you know, the policy the policy continues to play out. So to me, it's, you, we got to be running both those things at the same time. What would be your advice? Because it sounds, I mean, the, the policy part 
definitely follows and at some point is 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 in front it really depends on the pieces depends on the 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 regions we have a region here in in actually up in the alps in in italy that have banned all um glyphosate and all chemical basically chemical inputs because they found a lot of the, the residues in children diapers etc in way beyond the fields because of course the farmers promised that it would only stay in the fields and, and would never go beyond the apple orchards they were spraying and they found that and they actually did a referendum it was a huge local movement did a referendum gave them a number of years to to either move or transition to organic but that has been spreading so it it it's either moving really fast because a number of farmers are moving or it's moving fast because of concerned consumers, et cetera. But to, I want to be conscious of your time as well to, to finalize with a few questions. What would be your advice to, because we don't have a replant in Europe, or at least not that we know of, or in Germany. Um, what would be your advice to a farmer like Benedict that, that is considering taking maybe on outside capital, um, but maybe also not? like how to to approach investors. And actually also that's a question, who are your current investors that are um, investing in these farmers or indirectly investing in these farmers? Is there something we can learn as Benedict is, and we are talking to uh, financial groups and investors here in, in Europe that are interested in transition finance, but don't really know where to start? That's a great question. So, you know, I think um, there's an enormous opportunity to educate and Farmers are some of the most incredible ambassadors for that. Some of the farmers and ranchers that, that we work with at Replant are incredible when they get in front of an audience and can explain and articulate this and the power that soil has as a carbon sink and what that actually means to their yields because it's coming from such a true place. So again, you know, to really elevate the status and the authority of a farmer in our food system is critical. So if those opportunities exist, if you're invited to speak on a podcast, if you're invited to speak at a conference, if you are a farmer, say yes. Um, and trust that you know more than most people on the subject matter and you're not going to screw up the lines because it's the life you've led. You're telling your own story, so you're not going to screw up the lines. So don't be intimidated by stepping into that leadership role and that voice of authority on these issues because we really need farmers to step forward. Um, in terms of capital, I think, you know, again, it's being really clear on who you are and what you need so that those capital partners can find you. And I think this, the story of soil is a powerful carbon sink. That's a climate story. And once investors realize that that's a way for them to allocate resources for clients that are really focused on climate, um, you suddenly have a, a new opportunity. But again, you know, I understand that, unfortunately, the resources in the capital markets are not there yet. They are growing quickly. Rabobank is a group in Europe that is one of the most forward-thinking, um, and I've had the privilege and joy, really. It was a lot of fun to work with them on some different initiatives here in the United States. So as an institution in Europe, they are one of the most forward-thinking. Um, and then, again, it's it's really, I think, to really kind of build coalitions. So... Um, again, for Benedict and others to really find other like-minded farmers and think about how you guys can come together because it's far less intimidating when you're going out on these new initiatives if you're doing it as a team. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's, that's really a crucial point. I would have asked this early on, actually, because um, you mentioned a couple of times also the connection between farmers and then potential you know, large, large um, wholesalers, for example, and and that's always the question of critical mass, right? Because I think 
as of now as lead in Germany, if you approach this new way, if you speak to any potential buyer of your product, they'll be like, yeah, I mean, sounds cool. L like, let me know when you've got it and then we'll talk basically, right? Mm -hmm. So to have that upfront Uh, basically security of saying, hey, if you can provide me with product X, Y, Z at this and that quality, I will buy it for this and that price. You have, you can't get that as of now. So I think finding other farmers around your area, find, finding other farmers who basically approach the same, let's say, uh, I guess, journey that you are, I think that's that's really critical because you can not only speak about the experience and the mistakes that you're probably going to do plenty of, but you can also talk about, look, we've got certain products, we've got certain things that we can offer as a group in, in a way, right? And that makes the attractiveness of it to a large buyer much, much higher as well, right? So I think that's, that's a, such an important part of it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, again, I think, you know, we're building a system that hasn't existed before. So give yourself permission for the grace and flexibility that's required in that. And that we are going to fall down, we are going to trip and fall. The important thing is you get up and you keep going. And I think it's also why, you know, to have colleagues beside you, as we work through this, um, just psychologically, it's really important, because then you know, you're not going it alone, that you've got somebody beside you kind of looking out for you, as we all navigate this. Yeah, I think with that, I I have the feeling, but I usually have this when we <laughs> do a podcast, we only scratch the surface. There's so much more to dive into, to unpack as we're building this and this sector and this space. But I want to thank you, Robin, so much for your time and for sharing your your lessons learned so far. And, and obviously you, you'll be learning a lot more over the next months and years. And thank you guys so much for this conversation. It's It's, it's clearly just so critical. And I think for anyone listening, the takeaway is... If you don't know your farmers, get to know them. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in because your employees are completely dependent on food. So the more that we can elevate farmer status in our society politically, you know, in the United States, I think we only have something like two farmers that are members of Congress. And again, for such a critically important part of society, there needs to be more representation at the table, at every table. Absolutely. That that was the... You started this podcast so nicely with such beautiful words and you ended it with the best way you could possibly do. So thank you so much. It was such a pleasure uh, having the chance to talk to you and thank you for your time. It was uh, it was amazing to have your, your opinion on this. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode, which is part of the Transition Finance series, trying to find appropriate transition finance to speed up regenerative agriculture on farms. For feedback, ideas, suggestions, please contact us through Twitter or via the contact page on the website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. Please share this episode with a friend and give us a five-star rating, which really helps others to find the podcast. All the episodes of the series can be found on the website and in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.